doesn't help to win if you don't win with your honor intact. That's not winning. Welcome to The Grit Factor, reimagining grit as part of the whole person in a life that matters. I'm your host, Shannon Huffman Polson. This season is brought to you by Tiller, the first personal finance service to automate all your daily spending and account balances into spreadsheets so you can track everything in one place with everything customizable, strict privacy, and no ads. Try Tiller free today at tillerhq.com. Also by The Grit Institute, providing whole leader learning journeys in grit and resilience, purpose and storytelling. Invest in your people for long-term success. Find out more at thegritinstitute.com. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Lori Reynolds, a three-star United States Marine Corps Lieutenant General, retired, who most recently developed, led, and managed the Corps' $12 billion global information portfolio, spanning intelligence, IT, networking, cybersecurity, space, and information. Reynolds guides complex global organizations to manage large-scale risk and transform operational information into strategic business intelligence assets. As the most senior woman in the United States Marine Corps for nearly a decade, and only the third woman to achieve her rank, she is recognized for her ability to identify and retain diverse global workforces to deliver innovation and value. Lori served on the United States Marine Corps Corporate Board with responsibility for strategic oversight of a $50 billion budget and global strategy, capabilities, and missions. She regularly reported to and was accountable to congressional committees on risk, cybersecurity, and strategy. And in addition, she serves on board transformation, cybersecurity, risk, and DEI committees. Lori founded L.E. Reynolds Group, a consulting firm, building on her 35 years of success and leadership in the United States Marine Corps. I know you'll enjoy this conversation. General Reynolds, thank you very much for joining The Grit Factor today. It's a real honor to have you here. Well, thanks for having me, Shannon. And thanks for actually having The Grit Factor. I think it's really important. Truly amazing to have you join us to talk about your incredible career. You know, when you first entered the Marine Corps, it would have been a very unusual choice, it seems, to make as a woman at the time. So could you tell us just a little bit about how you found yourself interested and, and where you found the courage to pursue this pretty unconventional career? It's a really good question. You know, I found myself at the Naval Academy. I, my entry into the Marine Corps, into the service, came from my really intense desire to go to the United States Naval Academy. I mean, I was fortunate, Shannon, that my family, you know, we're from Baltimore. And just one day when I was a sophomore in high school, my family took a day trip to Annapolis. And once I walked the grounds, I was just really drawn to just being there and having an opportunity to go to that school. What an honor that was. But what, what I was told when I went there was, and this was, you know, the first class of women graduated in 1980. And this would have been 1982 when I showed up at the Naval Academy. And so we still had a long way to go in fully integrating women at the Naval Academy. But the good gouge that I got was none of this is personal. None of this discipline that you're gonna get is personal and uh, never let them see you sweat. So I really thought through that. I just refused to let the boys make me cry. I just refused. You're not gonna see me cry. and so. What happened, Shannon, is kind of funny, is their response, the midshipmen that were disciplining me at the time and other women, it's like, oh, okay, Reynolds, you think you're tough. You think you're going to be a Marine. And I'm like, well, okay. I mean, if that's what it means to be a Marine, then I can do that. You know, I, I put my game face on. But more seriously, you know, I think what I learned there at the Academy, I think you're just drawn to the culture of these different services. The Army has a culture, the Air Force has a culture, the Navy has a very strong maritime history culture, and the Marine Corps culture is very, very strong. I was drawn to the mission of the Marine Corps, I was drawn to the culture, and I was drawn by the officers um, that represented the service there. And quite frankly, I don't think I was smart enough to know what I was getting myself into. 
it turned out okay, right? I really love being a Marine. I still love being able to say that I was a Marine. It was wonderful. It wasn't always easy, but it's, it's not supposed to be. So that's how I uh, got into the Marine Corps. I hear from a lot of leaders that sports played a big part in both developing confidence early on as a young person and also potentially in their ability to navigate some of those challenges within the military. What was your experience with that? It's so, so important. I grew up playing soccer and uh, softball and basketball in high school. I played basketball at the Naval Academy. But, you know, Shannon, everything that I needed to know about small unit leadership as a young second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, I learned on that basketball team at the Naval Academy. I had an amazing coach who, you know, the standard was the standard and you were gonna meet the standard. Your listeners can't see me, I'm six foot tall. So I kind of played small forward. My strength was not dribbling. My strength was get the ball when it comes off the rim. So it's this whole idea Early on in in my career, Shannon, of finding out how and where you best contribute to the team and then do that very well. Do the basics well, you know, learn defense, learn offense and just we don't need sexy. We need you to do the basics well. I don't know what kind of officer I would have been had I not been a team sports kind of person. I just relied so much on all of those experiences for your listeners who might be high school sports coaches or college coaches, boy, the impact that they're having, whether they know it or not, the impact that they are having on potential young leaders out there is incredible. That's a really good thing to reinforce, both from your own experience as well as understanding the impact that we have on others. And actually, I love how that leads into some things that I know that are really important to you and that you've talked about in the past. But I talk to a lot of clients about being part of a team and what it means to build your own team to support the work that they're doing. So you've talked a little bit about how you started to understand this concept of team. Can you talk to a couple of times during your career where that was particularly important and maybe where you really had to focus on doing the work to build that team, what that meant and and how you went about it? Yeah. Well, first off, I think as you think about joining an organization like the United States Marine Corps, it's just one big team, right? And so when you think about it from that perspective, look, uh, our standards in the Marine Corps are pretty high for a reason. And for your listeners who don't really maybe fully understand, the Marine Corps is the smallest of the services. Its job is to be the most ready when the nation is the least ready. We have a mandate for readiness, right? Which is to say that we are forward deployed. We are the we call it the nation's 911 force. And when something bad happens around the world, Marines are there to buy decision space, to buy time. That's what we do. And so this whole culture of fitness and readiness and an organization with that kind of intensity, it can be overwhelming until you mm-hmm. kind of breathe deep and say, okay, I don't have to know everything. I got to know my part. Sure. I have to do my job well, and my platoon that I have or my company, you know, my job is to make sure that they know what their part is, and then we're just going to do the basics well. It just, for me, thinking about it from a team approach helps me to not be overwhelmed. Again, going back to the sports analogy, you don't win games by yourself, right? And it's, and it's about how you best contribute to the team and understanding what everybody else's role is. And, and it develops kind of this sense of humility as well, right, as you're doing it. Because as much as you want people to realize that you're a good teammate, you have to go out and do the work to understand what everybody else is doing and how they can help you. So that worked for me at Echelon, like throughout my career, whether I was part of a team or leading a team, just thinking about it from that perspective, it was always very, very helpful to me. Yeah. When we spoke before, one of the 
biggest challenges of your career was when you shifted from this very team-focused sort of a role that is more typical of what you would do in the Marines, as you've been describing, to something that was a lot different and made more challenging in those differences and in that more individual focus. Can you talk about how you adapted to that? What was difficult about that? And then how you drew on those strengths from what you had learned earlier to be able to apply that to that challenge? Yeah. So when I was a major, I was very happy. I was out in Camp Pendleton, California, where every good Marine wants to be. And I was a company commander in my you know, chosen field, which was communication. So I was raised in the Marine Corps as a communications officer. And I get this phone call from headquarters Marine Corps that says, uh, Major Reynolds, you've been selected to go command a recruiting station in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I said, you, you must be mistaken because I'm, I'm here in Camp Pendleton and I have a company and I'm good and this is exactly where I'm supposed to be in my career and thanks for your contribution to the conversation, but here, here are your orders. And so I find myself in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania doing recruiting. Now, you have to understand that, again, I, I mentioned how small the Marine Corps is. Uh, we're also very young by design. Okay. Um, recruiting is the lifeblood of the Marine Corps because at any one time in our in our past, it might be changing in the future, but in our past, a uh, 66% of the Marine Corps is in, a, is in their first four-year enlistment. Wow. Now you think about that, right? So most Marines are under the age of 26. It's a very young force. It's a, again, because it's highly deployable and so forth. So recruiting in that environment is very high stress. It is a no-fail mission for the Marine Corps because we turn over so fast. And up until this point, there had only been two other women that were assigned to recruiting duty. And this is 1997 and began to kind of challenge this notion that only Marines who were in the combat arms uh, professions could lead recruiting because it was considered peacetime combat. It was like no-fail. So I find myself in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, you know, it's this big experiment of, you know, women in command of recruiting stations. Will they fail? Will they not fail? It was hard. I mean, it's probably the hardest job I've had in the Marine Corps. Maybe it's a close second to commanding Marine Forces Cyber, and we can talk about that later. But sure. here's why it was so hard. I had 44 canvassing recruiters in all of Eastern Pennsylvania, and I had to find a way to communicate my intent. I wanted them to make mission the right way with a clean conscience, with where we were going to promise things that we could actually deliver on. We were going to fulfill uh, the needs of our uh, young folks that wanted to join the Marine Corps. And it was hard because so many Marines, just like I was told to go, they didn't ask to be recruiters. Sure. They, They are not natural salespeople. They're just Marines. And so you got to figure out, okay, here's Sergeant Smith. You just got to pat him on the head and it's all he needs for a week. And this Marine over here, he needs to be incentivized. And this Marine over here, he needs discipline. You just need to kick him in the butt every day. And this Marine, you got to call him. It, emotionally, Shannon, it was draining to understand from a leadership perspective what motivated each of those 44 Marines to perform with honor, right? And I'm an introvert. And so I just learned so much at the end of the you know month, you're just absolutely exhausted because unlike every other mission that we have in the Marine Corps, recruiting is kind of an individual sport. At the end of the day, the numbers say whether you made it or you didn't. And each recruiter at the end of the month, the numbers say whether they made it or not. And so it's very difficult. There's so much to the art of recruiting. And you know, those of your listeners who do sales will know what I'm talking about. I never wanted to be a salesperson. Right. Best product in the world is the United States Marine Corps. There's just no doubt about it, but it's still very hard. The leadership lesson, Shannon, that I learned there, the resilience, the grit that it took to just keep Marines motivated in a very demanding environment really were lifetime lessons. And so as a Lieutenant Colonel, when I was selected to command a battalion that was headed into Fallujah, Iraq, I was able to draw on all of those lessons, how important kneecap to kneecap is in a leader's kind of portfolio of things, because at the end of the day, uh, leadership is a very personal thing. Sure. 
how you are able to inspire people, inspire them to contribute to the team. Everyone's motivated by different things. Recruiting duty for me is, is one of those examples of where I really thought my career had been derailed. And as it turns out, it was exactly where I needed to be to get me ready for the other hard jobs that were coming my way. And so I just, I often think about that when we, when we think, we think we've just taken kind of a left turn, you know, I would just offer, just dig in, just learn what you can, uh, because you never know when you're going to build on those skills that you, that you learn along the way. I have to admit, I never thought of or understood recruiting in any way, but certainly not how you've explained it. No one in any service comes into the service to be a recruiter. Sure. No one. Right. And so this is one of the reasons why it makes it so difficult. I mean, you believe in the product for sure, um, or you wouldn't still be in the uniform, but this is hard. (laughs) It's hard. You know, one thing that comes to mind as you're talking about that, and and I want to get into the time that you took your... um, tie into Fallujah as well, but because I think they probably both apply, but there's a lot of discussion about leadership transparency. And I think there's lots of places that transparency is really good. It's incredibly important to be transparent about things like finances and and where things are so that, that people aren't in the dark. But at the same time, it seems to me that when you're doing something like what you're describing there, where you're really having to motivate individuals in completely different ways, and you yourself are learning completely new skills, there's a level of almost translucency that's required, right? I mean, you can't go in there and and show that you're scared. You have to go in there with confidence, right? To inspire confidence. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it's a balance. You have to be confident. Yes. But you, but you also can't fake it. Sure. Right? Because in my experience, I mean, we have a lot of people that try to fake it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's and it's hard, right, Shannon? You've been here. You. In the military, you move, you change jobs every two to three years. Right. And sometimes you walk into a job where you're in charge. This is this happened to me. You know, recruiting, recruiting. I, I never, I was not a recruiter. So now <laughs> I show up as a commanding officer of a recruiting station. It's a completely different language. I have to go to sales training. I have to go to all these. But my but my recruiters know that I don't know. They know that. So I'm not going to fake it. What I'm going to say is. You know, I'm going to pull up alongside them and I'm going to say, show me what you do. Yes. And show me what you need from me so that you can do that better. My job as a commanding officer is to remove obstacles to production. That's my job. So if I don't understand what the life of a you know recruiter in the Marine Corps is, then I can't remove those obstacles. Sure. High schools that are just very, very difficult to work with. Or, I mean, that's my job. So I, th- I think there's kind of this, art form when you walk in and you're expected to lead of having of having confidence that you can learn being vulnerable enough to ask people tell me what i need to know what do you what do you need me to know about this job and then just moving fast when when you are confident enough to kind of make the decisions that you have to make i think the other thing that that is relevant here though shannon that i think is this seems like a blinding flash of the obvious, but but the more that leaders can articulate the why, mm. yes, you have to assume that your workforce, they're thinking individuals, they're smart, they want to be part of that team, they want to contribute. So don't tell them what to do without telling them why. And then, you know, I always say it's it's not just what we accomplished, it's how we accomplished it, because the how matters right? The how matters, the footprint that we leave behind, the processes that we leave behind, they matter. And so knowing as a leader, when to ask the next question, you know, when to kind of say, hey, this is, guys, this is what I need you to do. But let me give you a little bit of the background so you understand why, why we're doing this. And then you let them run, right? You let them run. And they so appreciate that. So many times people are just left in the dark. I don't know why I'm here. Look at Shoot, Shannon, look at what the Russian army is dealing with right now. I don't know why I'm here. Exactly. I just know it's cold and I'm in this truck. And so I'm going to let the gas run down. Um, The heater's staying on until the gas is gone. You know, I mean, when you educate your folks to know exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it, why it's important. And then you you watch them perform for you, right? Then you just let them go. Yes. Those are 
incredibly wise words. And and I think that a lot of people are facing these challenges right now where things seem uncertain and things are volatile and nobody's quite certain how it is to lead through these times. And those sound like really sound principles to, to make those connections to your people, to spend time with them, to ask them those questions, to ask them those follow-up questions. And what I love that you're also saying, and I think this is something that we need to talk more about as a culture, as a business culture, as a military culture, is you got to get the job done. You have to accomplish the mission, but you also need to do that with honor and with integrity. And so how do you inspire that against the challenges of, hey, you also need to individually perform and the numbers are going to show whether or not you've made your numbers at the end of the month? How do you how do you hold those two things in balance if they are ever at odds? It isn't a balance. I mean, because it doesn't help to win if you don't win with your honor intact. That's not winning. And I mean, this is what I think, uh, Shannon, as as officers, as leaders in uniform or out of uniform, even, I think, I, I always felt like my job was to help Marines become better people, right? So, so none of us are ever finished, right? Our job is to represent the American people. And so we have to represent wherever we go, we have to represent the very best of who we all are as a nation. And so that's work. That's all of us. We hit ethical dilemmas sometimes and, you know, working our way through those things. And the challenge of a duty like recruiting, going back to that, is Marines are working on their own. They're not supervised every day. And so it really, just keeping their schedule, putting in the hours, doing the hard work, there's kind of a, you got to do the work. I, I think as a leader, you know, you don't want to end up preachy but you do want to leave them better that you want them to feel like they're better people because they serve with you. Right. I think that's really important. And we talk about it a lot, but how you do that is in the everyday. Right. I think that we have a lot of heroes in uniform, heroes that have given their lives and they've made you know decisions to do something very brave. And there are a lot of heroes that make very tough decisions every day as well. And it's all about making people better and doing the ethical right over the easy wrong. Those things are just as important from a leadership perspective, I think. For sure. How did you remind yourself when things were challenging? And I know you talked about helping your Marines understand why it is that they were doing what they were doing as well as what the requirements were and what the mission was. So for yourself, when things were challenging, when they maybe felt like these were all new skills, it wasn't where you wanted to be necessarily, um, you weren't quite sure how it was all going to work, how did you stay connected to purpose? I feel like that's an important thing we talk about a lot. I think we can't talk about it enough, but it is harder to do than it sounds sometimes, especially when things are challenging. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I think at the end of the day, you got to be able to sleep with yourself. You know, you got to be able to be proud of the work that you're doing and you got to wear the uniform well and you can't be an imposter. And uh, this whole idea of, you know, leading by example, and that's not easy. <laughs> We all have bad days. And sometimes leading by example is telling your folks, look, I messed up yesterday. Shannon, one of the things that, that I would tell young people today coming into the service is you can and should be deliberate about the reputation that you wish to have. Mm. Yes. Um, it doesn't just happen. I mean, it can, but it, it may not be what you really want it to be. And, and I just think that you... You can be thoughtful about that as a leader, as somebody who is building a reputation in a profession, whatever it is, how do you want people to think about you? Are you who you think you are? Are you, and you know, for me in the Marine Corps, I, I would tell young people, you should be the Marine Corps that you thought you joined. You should be the leader that you wanted to have. It's just being thoughtful and deliberate every day. Yeah. Well, and as you came into your role as a recruiter, and I know this was true actually at many points, starting with the Naval Academy going forward, you would often be the, the first woman or the only woman who had been in that role. And I know when we talked earlier, I liked a phrase that you use that you're fitting in while standing out and the art and the science of that, which I think comes into play a little bit here in this deliberate application of 
how it is that you want to develop yourself, how it is that you want to show up, how it is that you want to be perceived and, and, and actually work. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what that was like for you and, and maybe early in your career, but also later in your career where you're one of the only three-star generals right in the room and you're the only woman in, in some of those conversations for nearly a decade. Mm-hmm. You know, as you, as you first come into the Marine Corps, at least in, in my experience, you earn your reputation. You have to be able to prove, Shannon, that you can hang physically. I mean, it's just when you walk into an organization that is mostly men, they first want to know, can you hang? Am I going to have to carry your stuff or are you going to carry your own stuff? Are you going to be the last one on the run or are you going to leave from the front? First, it's physically, then it's technically, you know, can you do your job? Sure. Only after you do those first two things will they begin to listen to, to any words that you say, right? And so just knowing that in my organization was helpful. I, the, the longer that you stay in where your voice begins to matter more. And there is this balance that I learned that I needed to have an ability to stand out when I needed to stand out, to have my voice matter, to say the things that needed to be said, to say the things that perhaps nobody else was ever going to say. Sure. While at the same time, you know, fitting into that team. So again, never leaving behind this idea of my contribution to the team, but knowing when to have the confidence to say, wait, that's not right. Right. Or have you considered this perspective? I, you know, it didn't take long for, for me. There's so few female lieutenant colonels and colonels and certainly generals in our core that everywhere I went, you know, I was the unicorn. And again, it helps to be six foot tall. (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes I don't have to say anything. I just move my eyebrows and, and that's all I really needed to do. And people would take notice. But I, I think, you know, there's just this, there's just this fine art of knowing when to be different. Sure. At the end of my career, certainly as a general officer, I had perspective that no one else in the room would ever have. That of being a woman, being part of a minority, having a viewpoint that the rest of the team just didn't have. And I think, you know, Shannon, what what you learn, there's so many things that just, I took on as kind of my responsibility. The longer that I stayed in the Marine Corps, you felt a greater responsibility to make a difference, you know, to make it easier for women coming behind you, for make it easy for other minorities, because the institution is just built for the majority. It's not malign, it's just how institutions run. Yes. And so it takes people to say, wait, you know, if we just tweak this a little bit, we would make it so much better for all of these people over here. Right. And, right. and sometimes it's just having the art of bringing these things up at the right time. Most times, I mean, you, sometimes you have to say it twice, three <laughs> times. Sometimes you have to be more persistent than that. And sometimes you don't win because the institution is the institution. Again, I mean, it's it's just this constant balance of fitting in and standing out and knowing when which lever is most effective right now, right? It's not always comfortable. And what about earlier on, especially as a as a junior officer, maybe even as an early field grade officer, there's early on in anybody's career, it, there is a balance and a dance and a development that comes about learning to be comfortable leading in your own skin versus leading like you think you need to lead as you see others around you who are different from you. How did that work for you? And, and what do you recommend for people who are making that navigation of that pretty difficult journey? Yeah, it's it's hard. Listen, I remember, again, I mean, we've already talked about it. You change jobs and change teams every two to three years. And, you know, just when people are comfortable with you and your leadership style, on you go to the next place and the eyeballs are on you again. And okay, you know, you got to prove yourself. There's this constant proving of yourself. But I think what I would say to young people coming in, Shannon, is just don't fake it. Yeah. Just don't fake it. When you're new, people know you're new. You can't hide the fact that you're new. Say, hey, I'm new. I'm ready to learn uh, who wants to teach me. Who you are, the things that matter to you as a leader never have to change. Those are the things that you can be confident in. I care about doing things the right way. I care about leaving things better than I found it. These kinds of things, you can own that all day long. But walking into an organization where 
you don't yet understand the mission, or maybe it's a different language, you know, and for me, it was recruiting, it was acquisition, it was these different jobs that I, cyber, I commanded as a two-star, a cyber command that I have, communications is not cyber, right? Cyber is a completely different discipline, and here I am as a two-star commanding it. You got to get real vulnerable. Sure. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit, because cyber is absolutely where so much is happening. How did that move happen? And and what was that like? Because you're very senior at that point already, and you've got to go in and still be able to be vulnerable. What what was that experience like? So just just very quickly jumping to this, I we spent a lot of time talking recruiting and the foundations I got from that. My next job was, you know, as a lieutenant colonel, I commanded a communication battalion in the Iraq war. I was in Fallujah. And then I was a colonel. I commanded Camp Leatherneck, which was in Afghanistan, had battle space assigned to me. And then from there, I'm selected as a general Shannon. And my first three years as a general, I'm assigned to Paris Island, South Carolina, which is our East Coast recruit training depot. And I also have the Eastern Recruiting Region. And then at about that time, I did a year in policy in the Pentagon, but our commandant at the time, General Dunford, called me and he said, Lori, I need you to get up here to Fort Meade. I want you to command Marine Forces Cyber. It's been a couple of years since I had my hands dirty on the network side as a communications officer, but cyber is not communications. We were trying to figure out how to build the teams, the teams that contributed to the Cyber Mission Force it's a new war fighting domain, Shannon. And so we're trying to figure out how to even fight in this domain. Where do you get the permissions? Where do you get the authorities? If you think about it in the early days of aviation, you're an aviator. You think about the early days of aviation. It would, it would be like, okay, we've built a plane. We kind of have people who know how to get the thing off the ground, but we really don't know how to land it yet. You know, so, so we're building the workforce Um, But what we don't yet really have runways and we don't have navigation systems. And if we want to use it offensively, we don't have any bombs to drop. That's where we were in cyberspace, right? So if you, that's my best analogy is to say all of these things were happening all at the same time. We were just building teams. And, you know, what most people don't understand is that you have to have your own infrastructure to fight from. Defensively, you're defending your networks. And so I owned the network and and that was easy enough to understand. But there were just so many big pieces that needed to be fit together from the doctrine to the training to the weaponry to the permissions. There's just so many pieces. Fortunately for me, Shannon, I was able to ask the next question and the next one after that. And sometimes as a leader, was one, of the, was one of the other things I always tell folks is always ask the next question. Your responsibility to the institution is to get clarity, right? Always ask the, ask the next question that's burning in your gut that you just, you just want to be able to move on. But, but it goes to how. It goes to not just what, what are we going to do, but tell me how we're going to do that. How are we going to walk through that? What do you need in order to be able to do that? And what will it look like when we're wildly successful? All of these questions that just build on each other. And I think sometimes people don't like to ask them because they feel like they think I won't trust them if I ask all these questions. No, this is what you do as a leader. You have to dig deep to understand exactly where are the issues that I can get involved in as a leader to make sure that it's easier for you to execute. That's what I spent three years doing, Jenna, three years. Talk me through this again. What are we doing? Who are our partners? How can I help build partnerships? It was just three years of intense learning and putting some rigor and discipline into who we were in the Marine Corps. What was the Marine Corps? What were we going to do in cyberspace and kind of putting some form around that? Fascinating, hard a lot of sleepless nights. But again, as a senior leader, your job is to just figure out how does it work today and how do I make it better for tomorrow? And how do I just continue to drive Marines and give them focus, make some order out of the chaos so that we can begin to step-by-step make progress? That's what leaders are supposed to do. And that's what I did. I tried. 
Can we back up a bit to Iraq and Afghanistan? And I know this is uh, jumping around your career, but I know that at the same time, there's some of the same threads that are carrying through each of these experiences, although your requirements may have been very different in each case. Talk a little bit about how that was different going from recruiting, which was incredibly challenging, to combat. Yeah, so, it, you know, I was just, Shannon, just really fortunate. The, the big milestone really for Marine leaders is to be selected for command as a Lieutenant Colonel. So as a Lieutenant Colonel, you've now been in the Marine Corps 12, 13 years, maybe. And that big milestone is finding your name on a list that says you have the honor now of commanding a squadron or a battalion. Kind of an institutional level board process that what you stay in to do is to be able to lead Marines. I was just so fortunate that I was selected to command a communication battalion back in Camp Pendleton. The communication battalion is the largest communication unit that we have inside a Marine Expeditionary Force. We were going back into Iraq. So we had done the march up into Baghdad and most of the Marines had gone home in the fall of 2003. And then it was, and then we had to go back. And so in February of 2004, Marines from the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force in Camp Pendleton went forward, and my job was to install, operate, and maintain a warfighting network for that commander. And so we were spread out across the Anbar province in Iraq. And so, of course, every lesson that I've learned so far about leadership is now put into practice, only in, you know, now the stakes are really high because uh, we're not talking about winning and, and losing the recruiting battle. We're talking about bringing Marines home alive. There's a lot going on back then. There were a lot of Marines that were deploying, and you just have to begin to kind of rest on everything that you've learned, follow your gut a little bit, ask for help. I had a great a sergeant major and a senior enlisted leaders who were wonderful partners, a very experienced battalion who had been to Iraq already and just come home and they were going again. And so building on all of those lessons learned and making sure we don't make mistakes that had been made in the past. You know, for me, Shannon, the the big thing that nobody talked about, but I knew was like the only female battalion commander that had taken Marines into combat like this. Wow. And so, you know, that there's an extra set of eyes on you. Nobody talked about it. I didn't dwell on it, but you sure don't want to fail. You know, there's a lot of really better reasons to not fail, like bringing Marines home alive. But I always knew that if anything bad was to happen, then my leadership would be questioned just because it's a woman Marine, you know, it's just the way it is. And I think over time that will change. But in 2004, it's the way it was. And so there's a, there's an added pressure there. There's a little bit of there's a burden there. And I think we talked about this the last time we spoke, Shannon. I, what really bothered me was this sense that my Marines felt it too. Mm. And you don't, you sure don't want to hand that burden down to your Marines. Sure. But I think they felt it out of loyalty to me. So a uh, lot of lessons learned. I mean, I learned some really crazy lessons on that deployment. Really, I bumped into them. We took over from a unit that had been positioned in the same spot that we were in and their daily hygiene was not what I would say acceptable. And so we went in and this whole idea of just pick up the trash, do the basics well. I started to, you know, notice that Marines were not picking up the trash. I mean, it's blowing around and like, that's not the way I want to live. And so I'd say, hey, Marines, let's pick up the trash. I would pick up trash. I couldn't get the Marines to pick up the trash until I said to my officers and my staff and CEOs, hey, okay, tomorrow morning, we're going to do a police call. Before I don't want the Marines helping. It's just going to be us. We're going to clean up the camp. I said, man, why, why are we doing it? Because I'm asking you, I've asked, I'm not going to ask anymore. We're going to clean up the camp. And they said, okay, man, all right, we get it. Then it's all it took. In about a week's time, we start doing these morning police calls. It did not take long at all for the Marines to begin to really take real pride in our unit, just because of the way the camp looked. It's kind of the broken windows theory that I watched play out, where if you just take care of the small things, the big things take care of themselves. And it goes back to this whole idea of, you don't have to be sexy with leadership. Keep it simple. Have standards 
that your Marines can thrive. They thrive, that your people will thrive inside the boundaries that you establish for them. Give them running room. But if you go left of this and right of this, I'm going to come down hard on you. But, you know, in, in this case, it was, it was just, we're going to run a clean camp. And what I saw happen was the same pride that they had in the way the camp looked translated to the network that we ran, the way they took care of each other. You know, when they saw people that would walk through our camp and toss, they would come together and like, hey, man, that's not the way we live here. And the team that came around over something that started with just pick up the trash. It was just this um, really incredible lesson learned for me as a leader. And so I say pick up the trash. It's not about the trash. It's about what are your standards? You know, you don't have to be a jerk about it. It's not about that. It's about this is the way we're going to live because the how matters. Um, that was just an incredible lesson for me as a young lieutenant colonel built on that in Afghanistan, Shannon, same thing. Now I'm running a camp. I got 20,000 people as a camp commander. I'm a communications officer. I don't know anything about running a camp. It just was my job. So, and by the way, they assigned me battle space. You know, I had an area of operations around Camp Leatherneck that was assigned to me. It wasn't the Marine Corps saying, hey, it's, it's time to assign battle space to a woman. It was just my job. You know, unfortunately, we had gotten to the point in 2010 when nobody really, nobody thought about it, you know. Not lost on me, by the way, Shannon, that, you know, when I came into the Marine Corps in 1986, women couldn't be in combat. Even when I was at the basic school, they wouldn't give us live rounds. The women in my platoon, we were in an all-female platoon. Yeah, we, we... When the men were off doing kind of live fire training, we had to go like butta butta jam, butta butta jam, because they didn't give us live rounds. Not because because the policy of the land then was that you know combat exclusion, women don't go into combat fields. So, not lost on me that from that time, where they wouldn't trust me with live rounds, they actually assigned me battle space in Afghanistan, and so I got to call that progress. Right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's slow sometimes. Um, you, you you roll with it. Uh, yeah. As it comes. I, you know what I've heard from several other people and you are a walking example of this as well is that you have to be ready for when things change and for when they change to be able to step into that and then to be able to lead. Yeah, I, I think my observation of the women that I've served with, they were more than ready. They were kicking doors down, you know. Just you know, even even in Afghanistan, I mean, we were questioned. I I, I remember there, you know, I had some working dogs that were on my team, and we would use them for bomb sniffing dogs. And and I had a young corporal. This was fascinating. I had a young corporal that was, she had a working dog, and she was assigned up in one of the northern forward operating bases at the time. And it was pretty kinetic time. And um, there was a CNN reporter, somebody did a story that they were up there and they said, Hey, here's this woman Marine out here with this dog and she's going on patrols with the infantry and she's doing a really great job. Did this really great story about her. And it wasn't, it didn't take long before it caught the eye of our higher headquarters. They were like, why, why do you have this, these women out there? Like, come on, man, it's 2010. The old policies don't work anymore. You know, and, I, and I'm talking to my CG and I said, sir, you have women all over this battlefield. You have truck drivers, you have maintenance specialists, you have, you know, we had a female engagement team, you know, gals that were out doing security missions and intelligence missions. I mean, there's, but there are people back in the United States that were going, what are these women doing out there? It's like, come on, not only are they out here, they're doing a really wonderful job. And I said, hey, by the way, sir, I think that working dog is a female too. Should I bring the work? <laughs> Right. I mean, I think about it. Right. The dog is getting the job done. Right. So it's all about talent management. So anyway, um, you're right. You're right. You got to be ready to step in. You got to sometimes be be willing to push the door open when it just makes sense to do so. 
Sure. But you're bringing up two things. And actually, I'd love to, to just mention one and then have you speak to the second. But the, the first one is that it's important to tell these stories, right? It's important to have you telling your story so that people who are not paying attention can start to understand and reframe their understanding of what leadership is and who's been out there doing it for decades already, more than decades, really, but certainly to make sure that these stories come to the front. Because as women leaders, we're, we're not conditioned to do that. And certainly as military leaders, we're not conditioned to do that because we're part of a team, right? But these are important stories to tell. And that is uh, important to know that how we tell our stories is important in organizations. And I hear organizations all the time talking about wanting diversity. But if you look at their posters on their walls and on their websites, it's all white men, right? And if you really are looking for diversity, you've got to both demonstrate that you're doing it and that you're making the attempt, but also show that population that you want everybody to come in and contribute their very best efforts. And you need everybody to come in and contribute their best efforts. So thank you for that. And to that end, I know you have some ideas on how is it that we work within these institutions that are constructed really for the majority to redesign them in small and large ways so that everybody does have a chance to come in and give their absolute best to the mission. Yeah, well, first you have to talk about it uh, differently than we have, I think, in DOD for so long. In my career, Shannon, we talk about diversity and it's just, you know, your mandatory annual training on, you know, sexual harassment and EEO and, and these things that are check-in-the-box kinds of training. It's not about how does diversity contribute to the mission. How do we think about building a diverse team that represents the American people wherever we go? And the way that I talk to my folks about it, you know, Shannon, I remember when I was at Paris Island talking to my 24 recruiting station commanders about how important diversity was. These are the recruiters, right? And I said, you know, if you want to go build a house or you want to go build some something, I don't want to be the carpenter that's given a box of hammers. I don't want a box of hammers. What I want is every tool that's available to me. I want the whole thing. I want them all. I want the full suite so that whatever problem I run into, I've got an answer for that. Yes. That's yes. diversity, right? That is it. And so wh why, why, if we're talking war fighting, would we just want to be representing one portion of our society? I think we haven't spoken like that in the past and Shannon, our history sometimes holds us back. We have a very strong legacy in the Marine Corps in particular. We are bound by our history. We stand on the shoulders of the Iwo Jima generation and the Chosen Reservoir and all, all of our history. It's what inspires people to join. It's what inspires people to greatness. There's very little minority representation in those stories. Right. And so we have to start telling new stories, to your point. We have to build on the past, and we need to continue to talk about the rest of these stories. Shannon, I think, I think about those 12 Marines and corpsmen that we lost in Afghanistan in August. And I think about Sergeant Nicole G. She's a maintenance Marine. She's part of the Marine Expeditionary Unit. She's standing on that wall with all those other Marines. And this very, very difficult job of rescuing people that needed to be rescued from Afghanistan, we left it to the Lance Corporals and the Corporals and the Sergeants and the Captains to figure out. And there's this iconic picture of Sergeant Nicole G standing there with an infant, right? That picture for me, we lost her two days later. She's gone. She gave her life. But what the Marine Corps needed her to be that day was just a human with feelings and compassion and bravery. And so it's going to take all of us to represent all of us. Yes. Right. And yes, on our worst day, we're going to have to be very kinetic and very lethal and our enemies need to fear us. That doesn't mean that we all have to look the same. So this is not in any day, in any way, watering down the mission of the United States Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy. Our enemies must fear us but they should also fear the way that we think. Yes. Right? And the power of, you know, what America really represents to the rest of the world. And that's where diversity comes in. Absolutely. That's the way I feel about it. I think when we really start talking about that, some of these other issues that are significant for us. Yes. 
the, the sexual assault, the sexual harassment and the hazing and some of these other things that have just lingered, they have just lingered and they're, they're hurting people because we sometimes think that we're protecting the brand. There's this too much focus on lethality without enough focus on the ethical warrior yes. piece yes. of who we are. The Russian army is very lethal. That's not who we are. I think if we don't start talking about it like that, if we don't start respecting what we all bring to the fight, I really believe that at the deck plate level, you know, how we treat each other, how we all contribute to the team, that's how you get after some of these kind of nagging but important ills that we just can't seem to kill in the military. Thank you for that. Well, it goes back to what you said earlier, that the how matters, right? The mission matters and the how matters also. It does. One last thought on this, you know, Shannon, and it shouldn't, I probably didn't give it as much time as I should have before I was faced with, okay, I'm taking Marines into combat. But I heard once when I was a young captain, the ethics of the military profession and the ethics of military leadership and that is this, this idea that only really in the military, maybe in some ways the law enforcement profession has, there's an analogy there, but there are very few other professions like the military where you may be actually authorized to spend the lives of the people that you love. Yes. And when you really think about it like that from a leadership perspective, these are people, I may have to send them into combat, there's a trust there that has to be built that leaders have to be very, very intentional. Sure. And trust is one of these things, I think, you know, as we think about where we are as a country right now, I'm really worried about it. We were 50 some years into the all volunteer force. People vote with their feet. Parents uh, support or not support or will not support their kids going into the service. It's all based on trust between leaders and led, between Congress and the military, between the president as the commander in chief and the military. And this whole idea of trust, because at some point, leaders will make a decision that that may cost the lives of the very people that they love. And so that's something that I think we all have to continue to work on, you know, to make sure that we never lose that trust. We're always and constantly working for it. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for sharing your stories in all different walks of life that will benefit from from hearing from you, uh, both on the grit factor and and I know in other ways that you'll be out in the world. I I so appreciate uh, both how you have served, thank you, and how you continue to serve. Thank you, Shannon. It's been nice talking to you and thanks for what you're doing as well. Thank you for your service. Thanks for listening to The Grit Factor. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and share it with a friend. Also, pick up your own copy of The Grit Factor for more candid stories and lessons from leaders in the vanguards of their fields. And invest in yourself and in your team with learning journeys in grit, leadership, purpose, and storytelling at thegritinstitute.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of The Grit Factor.